0: All right, hello, uh, welcome to Adventures Among Ideas, bringing you intriguing ideas from the history of intellection, available on video and in audio podcast form. Hold on to your hats today, folks, because as you can see from my shirt, if you're watching the video, today we're talking Peterson. Actually, I'm going to say a little, about, uh, a little bit about a book I was a contributor to called Jordan Peterson, Critical Responses. Uh, the book came out in January from Open Universe, I think that used to be called um, Open Court Press, which is part of Keris Books. It was an, uh, edited by Sandra Woyen, if I'm pronouncing her name right, um, a professor at Arizona State University. I just got my copy a few weeks ago. Make sure you can see this if you're watching the video. Just got my copy um, a few weeks ago. It's got a... Um, forward by michael schellenberger which is kind of cool and um yes the back has a picture of god giving life to lobster which is um a nice touch uh so yeah lots of great contributors i'll talk a little bit about what's in the book and just my experience of it got my notes out of order here so let's see yeah um let me first say a little bit about my relationship to the phenomenon of Jordan Peterson which um, I haven't really talked about before Um, I actually discovered Peterson's work around the same time that he started to become famous around uh 2015 or 2016 or something in there I was doing a lot of uh, research on ancient myth and religion and this was basically an extension of my graduate school research. Um, I was kind of going farther back in time in uh, things like Indian myth, Chinese myth, and I uh, was also interested in kind of the Greek counterparts of that um, and Middle Eastern counterparts of that. And Because of this research I um, discovered Peterson's lectures on YouTube about myth and I guess I watched a few of those um, it was maybe in September 2016, uh, if you know your history, that uh, Peterson, you know, your uh, pop culture history, that Peterson made his uh, infamous videos about Canadian Bill C-16. Uh, and I think because I'd watched some Peterson videos before, I started to see those on my um, YouTube feed and also about the the protests about those videos. And uh, yeah. So, um, I don't think I have actually watched all of the C-16 videos, but I did watch a couple of the the protest videos. I don't know, it's not my my field. But anyway, uh, Peterson started to become internationally famous, of course, at that time. He was already kind of well-known before then. Um, And I started to follow him a bit more closely. Um, I was always impressed by Peterson's, I would say, oratorical skill. And by the subtlety of his approach to complicated issues his way of discussing a problem is generally very uh, very what i would call dialectical Uh, he kind of circles around issues pointing out the different variables involved and shows how the way to resolve the problem is not so clear as we might think or we might want we might hope so you don't necessarily get um, a solution to a problem when peterson talks but you at least gain a new appreciation for the subtleties of the problem, whether it's um, you know gender or um, whatever some political issue. Um, of course, he does have uh, certain positions he feels feels very strongly about, perhaps even dogmatically about. Uh, at some point in my observation of Peterson, I thought I saw a parallel between him and. Thomas Carlyle the writer Scottish writer Thomas Carlyle who I was also studying around this time because of my work on romanticism I started getting more involved in um, romanticism research and Carlyle if you don't know as I mentioned a Scottish writer of the uh, he was of the 19th century and in his own day he was very influential and also very controversial so Carlyle's book uh, Sartre Risartis, Sartor Resartus, is one of my all-time favorite books and was it was an immensely popular book during the 19th century and even into the 20th century. It's a little bit forgotten today. Um, Carlisle's philosophy is very much like Peterson's, I would say. Um, well, we'll get into some of Peterson's uh, philosophy a little bit today, but Carlisle, yeah, there's a lot of parallels, I thought, at least, and um like peterson carlyle had some ideas that were pretty scandalous to the uh liberal orthodoxy of his time um which is another interesting kind of parallel there's a lot of interesting parallels maybe in their biographies as well and if you want to get a sense of what carlyle's book which i really like as i mentioned uh sartor resartus is about you can uh, actually read, I would rec- even recommend reading the preface to Jordan Peterson's Maps of Meaning. I've talked about this in um, other places, but Peterson's preface to Maps of Meaning is almost like a compressed version of a big chunk of Sartor Risartis. And A few uh, years ago, I actually wrote a paper exploring some of this. Um, it was called uh, Politics and Prophecy, Jordan Peterson's Antidote to Modernity. This was published in 2019, and i also explored this issue in another paper, which was not published, but it is available online, which focuses more specifically on Carlisle. Anywho, uh, sometime in 2020, I saw a, I think it was 2020, although um, I'd have to look it up to be sure, but I, I i think it was in 2020, I saw a call for papers for a new book on Peterson. It was being put together by Karis um, Books. I knew Karis from their kind of uh, those uh and philosophy books you might have seen. Um well I used to see them in the bookstore when there was bookstores because there's still kind of bookstores, but um not so much as there was before. Um but you if you looked in the philosophy section of a bookstore you might have seen these and philosophy books like Pokemon and philosophy or The Simpsons and Philosophy and so on. And um I also knew them from their philosophy of books like the philosophy of Richard Rorty. I've got um For various reasons, I have uh, the philosophy of Jako Hintika, (laughs) Um, Mr. Jako Hintika, Um, which is kind of weird because uh, he's Finnish, if I remember correctly, and I'll talk about a couple of other Finnish writers today. Um, Anyway, they're a good publisher as far as these things go. They do interesting stuff, so I thought I'd give it a shot. I didn't uh, have any idea at all whether I would get accepted, but um, I did. If i understand it correctly the peterson book was supposed to be the first book in a new series called the ideas of so a new series of books kind of like their philosophy of books but this was the ideas of for example the ideas of jordison uh the ideas of jordan peterson i think was the original title later it got changed uh, changed into this critical responses um line of books of critical responses and they're working on one on uh, sam harris and no doubt they have others planned um, originally um if again if i remember correctly we were just supposed to explain something about jordan peterson not really criticize critique him but um, explore or explain one aspect of peterson's thought of his philosophy or ideas whatever uh, my own chapter was written with this in mind other chapters took a more critical approach and the book Shifted into its present form, which contains uh, different kinds of approaches. It's kind of a mix of different things. Uh, some authors put Peterson's ideas or his utterances, like his speech, uh, through critical analysis, looking for uh, looking for weak spots, maybe. Uh, other draw- authors draw parallels between Peterson's ideas and those of others, and uh, some authors such as uh, yours truly, just attempt to explain, basically explain one of Peterson's theories or ideas. My own chapter, I think, is unique in that I believe I'm the only author to actually go in-depth into Peter's academic public uh, publications. Um, and actually, my t- chapter just goes into a small subset of these publications. Peterson's Theoretical writings on behavior, which is what I focus on, can be quite dense. So I mainly tried to put his ideas into a more accessible form. This was an interesting experiment and experience for me since I, um, you know, I kind of try to do that normally, but um, I haven't really had to go through the process of. yeah, a more kind of formal process of making things accessible and having people say, well, no, this is not really accessible. You might think it's accessible, but it's not really understandable to regular people. Um, anyway, this, uh, Jordan Peterson's theories of behavior are not, uh, I think familiar to a lot of people. Um, so I think, you know, I was trying to, trying to make these maybe a little more accessible, mainly more more digestible to people. After Peterson wrote his uh, main major book, Maps of Meaning, he continued, which a lot of people know, although I don't, probably not a lot of people have read carefully because it's uh, huge and uh, can be difficult to read. But after um, Peterson published Maps of Meaning, he continued to refine his ideas about meaning and behavior. And um, a number of interesting articles came out of that, which I um, explore in my chapter, at least briefly. Uh most of the other chapters um focus on Peterson's videos on um, stuff that got released through YouTube though there are um discussions of his book of his books also maps of meaning 12 rules for life and beyond order. Uh I think this is fine it's perfectly reasonable since Peterson is known more for his public talks and his popular books like 12 rules for life Um, He's known more for those things than for his technical and theoretical writing. But, of course, the scholar in me uh, wanted to see more engagement with his uh, written works. Uh, Despite all that's been written about Peterson, I may be one of the only people to actually focus on his academic writing. And within his academic writing, I should say, I've really just explored the third or so, which is about the theory of human behavior or action. Um, I uh, I don't remember it. Kind of was thinking in terms of philosophy of action when I wrote my chapter. Um, I don't remember if much of that, uh, only a little bit, I think, of that made it into the final chapter. Um, There's also a lot of, uh, Peterson also has a lot of articles about things like alcoholism and personality, which I uh, don't know very well. And that's not really in my chapter. Anyway. Anyway about the book here, uh, Jordan Peterson, Critical Responses. It's not the the first book about Peterson, but I think it's still an important book because it captures a really wide range of topics and includes authors who have pretty diverse viewpoints on Peterson. It's not all from one perspective. It's not all negative. It's not all positive. Um, Some authors are basically critical of Peterson. Some are more neutral. Uh, Some are supportive. yeah, it's not just a bunch of uh, people dunking on Peterson. It's not all a bunch of uh, kind of blind flattery. You get a pretty well rounded picture of Peterson as an intellectual. So I think the book has a lot of virtues just because of that. You get so many different uh, perspectives. Uh, there's definitely different themes in the book. Some authors focus on culture war issues, like Peterson's comments on gender and on what he calls uh, postmodern neo Marxism. I'll talk about that a little bit. Um, some authors focus on Peterson's interpretations of stories or his understanding of religion. Some authors focus on his view of truth and science, uh, or on his relation to ancient philosophy, like stoicism. Uh, there's even a chapter on music, which is kind of cool. Um, I can't talk about all of this. On this episode, of course, so I'll just mention a few points or a few themes that uh, stood out to me just because of my own interests. Um, like I said, some authors are more critical of Peterson than others. Some of the criticisms are fair, I think, a lot of them are fair. um, some maybe less so. A few authors have criticized Peterson's understanding of postmodernism and Marxism. Um, this criticism has been haunting. Peterson for a while now really and I think it's pretty fair but also to be fair postmodernism and Marxism are not really his specialties although he studied uh, the Soviet Union quite a bit in that history I think the kind of modern um, non-Soviet versions of uh, Marxism and postmodernism are not really um, the world he lives in <laughs> so um But he talks about postmodernism and Marxism because they uh, seem to be involved in the problems faced by the university, but they're obviously um, things he hasn't researched as much as other things where he's more specialized. Um, So I found David Gordon and Ng Tong's chapter about Marxism especially valuable. Uh, Their chapter is called What Jordan Peterson Should Have Said About Marxism. What Jordan Peterson Should Have Said About Marxism. And this chapter gives a good, succinct overview of differences within the Marxist tradition. So it's uh, enlightening to read just for that purpose. Um, Another chapter on postmodernism by the Finnish philosopher uh, Panu Rathikainen is also useful. Not sure if I'm pronouncing this name right. I have no idea really about Finnish names. Um, So I'm just trying to do my best here. But Rathikainen... hopefully that's kind of close, is highly critical of Peterson. And again, I think many of his uh, criticisms are fair. There's at least one criticism that I consider maybe a little unfair that I want to mention. So Rathakainen criticizes Peterson's claim that postmodern philosophy dominates Western universities. I don't know if Peterson says dominates, maybe he does, probably he does somewhere, but um, he certainly emphasizes that um, postmodern neo-Marxism is a big problem, a big source of problems in the modern uh, university, kind of big ideological source of problems in the modern university. Ratikainen tries to, I think, disprove this or show this is not so correct by referring to a well-known survey of academic philosophers. This is the Phil—I forget what it's called now—but there's a Phil Papers website that um, does a survey every so often of philosophy of philosophy professors, um, and so Ratikainen is referring to this. Uh, now, I don't know how it is in Europe, but in North America, I would say the last place you would look for postmodernism or for Marxism in philosophy is in actual philosophy departments. At least in North America, as far as I'm familiar with, you would look for these things in uh, language and literature, literature departments, actually, and in places maybe like cultural anthropology and sociology, cultural studies, gender studies, um, and departments like that. As I've talked about in other episodes, deconstructionism, deconstructionism, which is uh, related to both postmodernism and Marxism, right? Derrida was uh, kind of a figure referred to in a lot of postmodern uh, writings, and he also um, had a certain kind of relation to the writings of Marx, um, which I don't know if you would—I don't know if you would call himself a Marxist exactly, exactly, but. Um, there's a relation to Marxism. Uh, so deconstructionism first took off in American language and literature departments, at least in the uh, in North America. Of course, it was known in France before, but uh, when it came across, it took a, a kind of took off in American language and literature departments, not in American philosophy departments. Um, David Gordon and uh, Ying Tong, who I mentioned earlier, their chapter on Marxism, they make this point actually. So Judith Butler, for example, to, you know, just one kind of very prominent example. Judith Butler is hugely influential, but not really in philosophy, more in the other humanities. And if I'm not wrong, Butler has spent uh, more time teaching in like comparative literature and English departments. He spent more time in these places than in philosophy departments. So in my experience, Peterson is actually right or more right than wrong about the influence of postmodernism and neo-Marxism, neo-Marxism in American universities, um, regardless of how well he understands what these things are. Um, It's just you would need to look in uh, um, not in philosophy. Uh, which tends to be a little bit conservative or something. I'm not sure exactly how I I would describe um, philosophy departments, but they're, um, at least in my experience of kind of major universities, they're not the places where you would go looking for people like Derrida. Um, Moving on, though, um, I'll briefly mention a topic I talked about last week, which is interpretation, one of my uh, recently favorite topics. Uh, As I mentioned in that episode, I mentioned this book already in that episode a little bit. um, And I mentioned David Ramsey Steele's chapter, which is quite good. Um, But I think Steele, um, as I mentioned before, does not recognize that there are different forms of interpretation that actually have different goals. Um, And I'm not sure Peterson recognizes this either, um, at least explicitly. Steele wants to use In his chapter, he is wanting to use what's called historical, philological, or situational interpretation to understand old stories. So Steele is criticizing Peterson's interpretations of biblical texts. And Steele is using this more traditional, historical, philological, not more traditional, but um, maybe more academic um, style of historical, philological, or situational interpretation to understand these biblical texts. Peterson wants to use what might be called emergent interpretation. To put it um, to put it briefly, Steele wants to focus on the historical situation of a text. Peterson wants to focus on what a text can do for us now. Uh, to make things complicated, though, Peterson is liable to slide between these two modes of interpretation without much warning. Uh, but you can I talk about this a little bit more in my uh, previous episode on the two was it two kinds of interpretation? I think. Uh, so, uh, Ron Dart, another of the authors in this book, Ron Dart, in his chapter, which is called Biblical Lilliputians, meet Gulliver, gives a more sympathetic interpretation of Peterson's biblical interpretations. And he shows how Peterson's use of the Bible is itself in a long tradition. So, the Bible has always been used as a basis for what I've called, um, after Morse Peckham, Uh, emergent interpretations. Interpretations not to gain knowledge about the past, uh, but as Dart puts it, uh, interpretations for for soul transformation and character formation. So it has a different kind of goal than academic, historical, philological interpretation. Um, This issue of interpretation is also brought up in Mark Champagne's very clever chapter called Stone, Stone Soup and Soup. Kind of a, if you don't know what the chapter is, is about, that title doesn't make a lot of sense. But once you do, I mean, it's clever. Um This is based on the, so his chapter is based around the old story about making stone soup, which I kind of had forgotten about and then got a was kind of a blast from the past. Um This is a story about a poor traveler who convinces a village that he can make soup from a stone. Um, I actually remember performing this when I was, I think, in elementary school or something. Uh, we had to do this in class. Um, and as the traveler starts to make the soup, he makes comments about what spices or vegetables might improve the taste, and, uh, the villagers give them to him. The joke, of course, is that the soup is not literally made from a stone. The stone is kind of the starting point, kind of the social object that allows the soup to get made. Uh, Champagne argues that Peterson uses biblical texts in this way. He's making stone soup, in other words or what i've called an emergent interpretation of a biblical text uh, champagne also argues in his chapter that we can make soup without the stone we could learn to make stoneless soup just make soup uh, meaning that we can build a culture on a uh, foundation of non-biblical non-supernatural stories and i think sam harris has made a similar similar um kind of argument peterson uh, Probably would disagree with this. And uh, I'm not sure if I know what to think about that yet. Uh, it's a tricky problem, right? You can't, it, uh, it's difficult to cut yourself off from um, a certain tradition that's been there for uh, so long. And everyone kind of knows, at least on a subconscious level. So I don't know. A difficult problem. Uh, I want to go back to Steele from, for a moment. So, Steele's discussion of the ancient philosophy and science of alchemy in his chapter is also, also worth reading. Steele covers a lot of different topics. Um, one of them is alchemy and how Peterson talks about alchemy. Um, so, as Steele notes, Peterson has accepted a lot from Carl Jung, Without being very critical about it. And um, it seems a fair criticism that Peterson has been maybe misled on certain topics like alchemy and archetypes um, by adhering maybe too closely to Jung. And maybe he doesn't keep up on all the modern research on alchemy and stuff like that. I don't know. Um, Which would be a fair criticism if it's true. Um, on the other hand, uh, Steele's dismissal of the is-ought problem this is another big topic in kind of Peterson um Peterson theory whatever (laughs) the world of Peterson is the is-ought problem one thing that often comes up and I think Steele's dismissal of this um problem is too simplistic I would say is a problem that Sam Harris also talks a lot about um, I think to understand Peterson's concern here when he's talking about the is-ought problem, we need to forget about Hume. That might sound a little bit harsh to say about Hume, but uh, I think we can forget about Hume when we're talking about the modern kind of is-ought problem. Of course, Hume, David Hume famously um, wrote about the, the is-ought problem, and you can't figure out what we should do basic, based on what actually is. You can't from a description of what is, you can't get to what, um, or at least it's a problem about how to get to what ought to be or what we ought to do. Um, I would just say leave this part of Hume to academic philosophers. I don't think we need to argue about what over what Hume meant when we're talking about this particular problem, because the real problem, I think, in the is-ought problem is the one that the philosopher of science mark garin raises in, in uh, his chapter in the book so he has a chapter called we're science we're all about coulda not shoulda and i think he gets more at the heart of the kind of modern is-ought problem so the problem as garin points out is um, the relation between science and the scientific worldview on the one hand, and the world of practical action, like political action, social action on the other. You know, science and the engineering fields tell us a lot about what is, about how the world works, about what we can do, about what we can do. Um, But what should we actually practically do with this information? I think this is a very real problem. So we can build a new kind of virus, or we can build a new kind of bomb, or we can build a new super addictive social media app, but should we? Right? The atomic bomb exists, it is, but ought we to use it? Right? Should we use it? These are the real questions, I think. Um, I think this is the modern kind of is-ought problem that Peter, uh, people like Peterson and Harris are worried about, and I don't find that one so easy to dismiss. Hume was basically before modern science, so I think, I I don't know, I'm not sure what he can tell us in this situation. I would say maybe let's just not worry about him. You know, there's a way, there's a a time to talk about Hume and there's a time to um, maybe let him aside. So yeah, I would say we don't need to squabble over what Hume meant really when we're talking about these existential problems like Um, what we should do with viruses and bombs that we make, or that we can make. All right. Um, So, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. But I think, uh, yeah, so I think uh, Harrison and uh, Harris, Sam Harris and Peterson make things too complicated when they bring up Hume and and everyone gets into the debate about what Hume actually meant. Um, Moving on, let's get out of that tangle for a moment. Uh, moving on, let's talk about truth. Get out of one um, frying pan and into another fire. Let's talk about truth. Uh, truth is a central concept in a few of the chapters, especially the chapters by Mark Gerin, um, who I mentioned just a moment ago, uh, Panu Ratakainen, who I also mentioned re- uh, earlier, and uh, Timu Timu Torjainen, another Finnish writer. So I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong. I'm sorry. Um, Those last two are both, yeah, last two um, are both Finnish again, which is interesting um, in itself, maybe. The central text, so to speak, for Guerin and Toriyanen is Peterson's conversation with Sam Harris. So in writing about truth, the central text that um, Guerin, Mark Guerin, and um, Timu Toriyanen use is peterson's conversation with sam harris in 2017 this is episode number 62 if you want to check it out uh, of sam harris's podcast so episode 62 of uh what was it called it used to be called waking up i think now it's uh well anyway you can look it up i'm clicking on the name uh using this podcast episode as a focus is understandable as it's the main place where Peterson talks about truth for an extended period. It's maybe his main, um, the main place where he really is just kind of talking about the concept of truth, but it's also not the clearest statement of position. I feel if I remember correctly, Peterson was quite sick at this time. This was kind of at the start of his health troubles and, um, it was was not really able to respond to Harris in a more kind of usual manner. Uh, I won't get into all the nuances of the discussion of truth in this book, in the Critical Responses book. All three of the authors that I mentioned, Geren Ratekainen and Toriyanen, uh, <clears throat> recognize Peterson as relying on a pragmatist theory of truth. So Peterson is kind of known for having more of a pragmatic or pragmatist theory of truth. Uh, Ratekainen thinks this is a basically a bad road to go down. But since his chapter is mainly about other topics, he doesn't give a whole lot of details about this. Of course, the, the pragmatist theory of truth has been very controversial in philosophy for a long time. So I'm not surprised that um, he would be against it as a philosopher, but I'm also not sure if he's aware of Peterson's longer discussions of truth. Guerin and um, Torianen, getting the names right, or did I mix them up? No, I think that's right. Um, Yeah, sorry, I'm bad with these uh, Finnish names, apparently. Um, Guerin and Torianen are more sympathetic or supportive, I would say, of Peterson's theory of truth. Both their chapters are worth reading for how they bring out the nuances in Peterson's and Harris's positions. So if you're a little confused about the difference between where Peterson is coming from and where Harris is coming from, I'd recommend taking a look at these couple of chapters. Um, In their view, Harris can be called a scientific realist, while Peterson uh, can be considered an anti-realist or a pragmatist, without getting too much into the weeds here of what all this means, Uh, realists see truth as mind-independent, so truth is true regardless of whether there's anyone there to know that it's true, while anti-realists see truth as mind-dependent, so truth depends on people for whom it is true. If there were no people, there would be no things that were true. Um, So both Guerin and Torianen show how, for Peterson, truth is bound up with ethics, And in fact, for Peterson, ethics is more important because it's our values that determine what problems we notice and what solutions we consider to be acceptable and thus true. But my only complaint is that I wish they had engaged more with Peterson's uh, written work. For example, um, in a a 2000 essay by Peterson called The Pragmatics of Meaning, he lays out uh, pretty clearly his criteria of truth. I think more clearly than he does in his um, conversation with Sam, Sam Harris, for example. Um, so he talks about his criteria for what makes something true. And his these criteria are, uh, in this essay, is, these criteria are consilience, algorithmic simplicity, and testability. Of course, this sounds very complicated. Um, But like the early pragmatists, Peterson is combining the coherence and correspondence theories of truth with with a certain kind of utility theory. So he's kind of, we might say it's an eclectic theory of truth, but it's drawing together different um, things that uh, we believe make something true. So, when Peterson is talking about consilience, this was one of his criteria, consilience, and he's uh, taking the term from E.O. Wilson, if I remember correctly. But when Peterson talks about consilience, he means that our ideas have to be internally consistent on as many levels as possible. So, a true explanation of some aspect of human behavior would have to fit together across, um, you know, let's say, physicochemical domains biological domains psychological domains and sociological domains in a consistent way or levels whatever so it has to fit across all these levels and fit together in a kind of coherent way Uh, and when peterson talks about algorithmic simplicity this was one of his other criteria uh, he means that a good explanation is simplifying it's easier to remember it's easier to use it works better it's more efficient than other explanations So we're talking about, I would call this a utility principle here. Uh, So if one explanation is both consistent across many levels or many domains, so it's consilient, um, and if it's easier to use than another, has this algorithmic simplicity, we can say that it's truer. And I think um, the later Peterson would want to add that a, True theory is not just efficient, but it's also conducive to human life or human flourishing. So it's got this ethical component as well, which maybe is part of this utility principle. Um, But then there's also testability. A theory needs to be verifiable through observation. So the data of our observation should fit with our theory. So this is more the correspondence theory of truth, if you know your theories of truth. Um, and very so very much like uh, William James, I would say Peterson combines various theories of truth to get something hopefully stronger than any one of them on their own. And I think uh, both Garen and Torianen recognize this in different ways using uh, different vocabularies. So to conclude, coming down to the end here, to conclude, I'll make a few brief mentions of other things I liked. There are a couple of chapters dealing with ancient philosophy, one by Tristan Rogers and one one by uh, Sandra Woyen, who was the editor. Um, This is not my field, but I did find these chapters fun to read. It was especially, I would say, I was especially pleased to see Rogers' mention of uh, the 12 labors of Hercules at the end of his chapter, which is something I referred to in an article I uh, wrote a little while ago called the 12 labors of zoro zora, zora neil hurston so it's on a modern topic but um it has this reference point to this ancient myth uh and peterson even i would say is a, a kind of hurstonian personality zora neil hurston of course or vice versa which is why i've been drawn to him i think you know i'm drawn to these figures that are um well, also Carlylean, you know, kind of these Thomas Carlyle figures, or Neale Hurston, the kind of strong individualist figures, um, these figures who um, find meaning in life, not by seeking after happiness, but by taking on these big, complex, difficult projects. Anyway, I like these people like that, which maybe I am like in some ways. Okay, yeah, there's pretty. Uh, there's plenty of other chapters in the book that are worth reading. I'll mention one other that I especially enjoyed just because of the pure writerliness of it. This is uh, Esther O'Reilly's chapter called Missing God. Missing God. Um, I think this is also an important chapter in the context of the book because you know, it gives us the best picture of Peterson as a suffering and conflicted human being. If you read the book after you get through all these debates about truth and neo-Marxism and postmodernism and biblical interpretation and gender and feminism, uh, I would recommend reading again Esther O'Reilly's chapter just to remind yourself that we're dealing with a real person here—a real person with um, you know his ups and downs and problems and so on. All right, but that's all I have today. Uh, have for today. Hopefully, my. Uh, voice is coming through okay. It's a uh, first week of uh, the semester, always messes up my voice a little bit. So anyway, hopefully it wasn't too rough, but thanks for listening and have a good one.